When you hear the swinging beat, the swinging song back, you know it's time to get in line and do the scale and scat. Emma, can you play the drums? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And I am back, ladies and gentlemen, to review the stories found within Skeleton Crew that I did not review uh, the first time around. So there has been a lot of clamoring out there. There's been emails and uh, Facebook posts and Twitter questions about when I am coming back. Guys, I'm back. I'm back. Um, For my next go around, um, I have been... You know, on a on a good uh, stretch lately, I have been podcasting one episode every month or so. Sometimes a little bit longer, and that's not fair to all you guys. Um, I was trying to get through um, Mr. Mercedes. I still hope to get to Mr. Mercedes before I you know re- did some recording. But because I was having difficulty, um, I said, you know what, screw it. Let me just go back to my original plan, which was to review uh, Skeleton Crew, the stories that I never got around to in my first review of that particular collection of short stories, because I figured that you'd probably like to hear uh, what I have to say, and then from here, um, I will continue my re-examination of the stories that I didn't get around to the first time. Guys, I am so sorry for my return back, um, that you're hearing what you're hearing in the background. I don't know if you can hear that or not, but for those of you who can and those of you who have been longtime listeners, chances are you know exactly what you're listening to. These are the sounds of my two co-hosts who are overjoyed right now that they could join you um, in in the return to the Stephen King cast. Uh, We are sitting here in our fireplace room. It's cold enough to warrant a fire in the fireplace. It's really toasty. It's really nice. I'm sitting on the floor. The dogs are behind me on the couch. They are completely loving life. So I do apologize for the snorting and the licking, but um, I couldn't say no to them when they asked me to join. So here they are. So, okay. Um, It is, as I record this, um, March 14th. And uh, before I get any further, one thing that I want to do, I want to read some iTunes reviews. Because as you know, as I always say, I can't do it without you guys, and I can't do it without the strong iTunes presence that that I have, and that's all because of the wonderful reviews and ratings that you guys have given me. So um, on March 5th, Dirk Diggler76 wrote, M-O-O-N spells fantastic. I've been listening to this podcast for years and have finally thought to write a review. The content and analysis is impeccable with the host always providing great insight. Keep up the good work, my friend. So Dirk Diggler, thank you so much for the kind words. And then we have Dandy Duke 25 who, wrote, who writes, This podcast fills me with white light. Seriously, you guys, this is everything you're looking for in a Stephen King-related podcast. I also love how he talks about Joe Hill and Stranger Things. This man loves the things that you love as much as you do, plus he is hilarious and swears the perfect amount. Um, So thank you for that. And anyone else who has been thinking about writing into iTunes, uh, feel free to do so because it's it's going to... um, it's going to help. It's going to help uh, give the uh, the Stephen King cast um, more exposure, and it's going to keep me towards the top of the, the search when you do a search on iTunes for Stephen King. So, if you do have a couple minutes on your times, feel free on your hands to feel free to, to write uh, a nice review on 
on iTunes because, like I said, it would really help me out. Okay, up next, uh, what I would like to do, I would like to read some listener emails. Um, so up first, we have Kirsty, who writes, Dear Stephen Kingcast, you always ask us to write in, so as requested, here is my listener email. I'd really like to say thank you for your podcast. There are only a few people in my circle who really enjoy reading as much as I do, but none of them are Stephen King fans, so I feel very alone in my fandom. For example, a couple months ago, I was having a lovely massage, and a thought came through my head, I'm floating, and straight after, I heard Pennywise saying, we all float down here, and I thought that was the most amazing thing and made me happy. When I told my friends, they all looked at me like I'd lost it, and most of them didn't even understand the reference. I'm wondering now why I'm friends with these people. Anyway, it's so great to hear someone else talking about my favorite author, especially someone who shows real appreciation and understanding of the work. Your podcast makes me feel less alone as a fan, less like a loser, and more like a member of The Losers. Every year I set myself a reading challenge. This year I've set 40 books to read, which includes a number of the book series such as The Dark Tower. Your podcast has inspired me, and I think that next year I will set a goal to reread all the Stephen King novels. On your recommendation, I have also added Joe Hill to be, to be Red Pile. I'm currently working my way through your podcasts, and I've just finished your month-long trip to Derry for It, in which you discussed how It was your gateway novel into Stephen King and what it meant to you. It started me thinking about my first encounter with Stephen King, and I really can't remember what it was. My first recollection is being a copy, of being given a copy of the Tommyknockers when I was a teenager and being told, I got you this because I know you like Stephen King. I remember it was around the time when I had outgrown young adult novels and was trying to find new authors and genres, so I'm thinking my first was probably something involving teenagers like Carrie or Christine. However, the novel that gripped me and changed my life was The Stand. I reread it every few years, and I always find something new. More than the good versus evil story... I love how deeply we get to know each of the characters and the thoroughness with which the plague and its aftermath is uncovered. Every man I meet is measured against my hero, Stu Redman. Unfortunately, most of them turn out to be the pre-plague version of Larry Underwood. As for The Dark Tower, well, let's say I'm more excited about the movie than a grown woman has any right to be about a movie or anything for that matter. I got chills just thinking about it. I'm about to start rereading the series in preparation, and I'm saving your Dark Tower podcast until I read the books. You recently, you recently asked us on Twitter what I should review now that I'm up to date with Stephen King's publications. What I would really like to hear more of is the interconnectedness of the Stephen King universe. You are really good at giving these, tying these things together when you are reviewing. So how about doing some podcasts on characters, events, and places that reappear, maybe the history of Derry or the life of Randall Flagg? I would be in geek heaven with a podcast like that. Thanks again for your podcast and your insights and for letting me fan geek out. Kirsty, a constant reader and constant listener, Perth, Western Australia. Kirsty, thank you so much for writing in. Maybe at some point I will get around to the interconnectedness um, and really examine things from the, the, the macro level. Um, but for now, I, I, what my, my goal is I need to um, review each of the, the stories that I never got around to the first time. Um, I do want to dip back into Joe Hill. I want to read... Um, Heart-Shaped Box and Lock and Key. Uh, we have The Outsider by Stephen King coming out in May. Uh, we have Castle Rock coming out this summer. So there is a lot uh, for me to cover, and that will take me through um, definitely into the fall. And so we'll see what, what happens after that. By the way, there isn't a day that goes by where my wife doesn't beg me to, 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 to move us to Australia. So whenever I get a, a listener from Australia, I'm thinking that at least I will still have some audience uh, if I go down under. 
All right, James writes, Hi there, I just thought I'd drop you a line to tell you how much I love your podcasts. I work in Disneyland Paris, and Stephen King has always been my escape from ordinary life. I started reading his work when I was very young. I think I started off with Christopher Pike and then moved on to Stephen King. Carrie was the first book I read and have read nearly everything else that followed. My favorites are Insomnia, Needful Things, Rose Matter, and I've started reading his son, Joe Hill. I adored Nosferatu. What a great story. I thrilled listening to the audiobook, too. It was fantastic. I've been blogging my own stories for years, and I hope one day to be a published author. If you would like to take a look at my blog, I appreciate some advice about my writings. So, guys, you can head on over to http uh, backslash backslash jamessykesauthor.blogspot.fr backslash. And Aaron writes, hello, uh, just listened to your Dark Tower trailer coverage. Oh, and just uh, just so you guys know, uh, these emails came in um, before the Dark Tower movie came out. That's which kind of gives you an idea of when I started putting um, some of this stuff together. Uh, so th- that's why there's a lot of talk of anticipation for the Dark Tower. Just listening to your Dark Tower trailer coverage, I'm excited to see what you thought. Meanwhile, in the lead-up emails, a listener brought up Roland using the word dude again. I was going to write in about the first time it came up, but I forgot until now. The word dude is a word that has been in use since the 1800s, and a traditional cowboy or other rural western character would certainly have used it. I've seen it in western novels from the 1920s and earlier. The word originally meant a person who was fancily dressed. Here's a quote from Wikipedia. From the 1870s to the 1960s, dude primarily meant a person who dressed in an extremely fashionable manner, a dandy, or a citified person who was visiting a rural location but stuck out, a city slicker. There were, in fact, a tourist attraction up until at least the 70s or so where city people could go work on a ranch for a few days. They were called dude ranches. So Roland calling somebody a dude is not totally out of character for a Western-themed character. Thanks again, and have a great day, Aaron. Um, Aaron, that is a great point, um, perfectly good point. But my issue with him using the word dude, though it has definitely its roots in um, literally Western literature, uh, I would say that in our society today... Dude, as the the surfer bro talk has completely overshadowed whatever connotations had come before. Um, so when you have your main character use a word like dude, and it's not referenced in any sort of ironic fashion by Eddie or another character, I, I just feel that not that it shouldn't be used, but I just feel like the the, the more powerful and potent and current iteration of that word sort of trumps what it had been and what had come from, even though it was totally appropriate for that character to, to, to say that. Does that make sense? All right. Um, so what we are going to do now, we are going to dip into Skeleton Crew. So at this point in Stephen King's publication, um, he the, the, the collection of short stories that he had written before Skeleton Crew was uh, Night Shift. And uh, then he followed up Night Shift with Skeleton Crew. And Skeleton Crew, I would say, probably is most famous for, of all the short stories found within, um, most famous for the novella component of the short stories, The Mist. Um, So if you head back 
into my review of Skeleton Crew, um, I, I tackle the mist, um, and then I have a, a, another episode completely dedicated to Frank Darabont's version of of the mist. So I, for those of you who are tuning in right now, and you wonder why I am missing what is probably the the most famous one might argue the most famous short story that, that Stephen King's ever written. It's not because I don't like it or not because I forgot about it. It's because I had included it during my first review of, of Skeleton Crew. Um, so what this is going to be is all the short stories in Skeleton Crew that I did not get to that first time around. And the first one is Here There Be Tigers. And from Wikipedia, Wikipedia writes, Charles is a third grader. He really needs to go to the bathroom. And his mean teacher, Miss Bird, asks him if he has to go before she allows him, embarrassing him. Very well, Charles. You may go to the bathroom and urinate. Is that what you need to do? Urinate? Arriving at the laboratory, he peeks around the corner and sees a tiger lying on the bathroom floor. He stands at the door, too afraid to enter. Eventually, a child named Kenny Griffin comes to get him. Charles begins to cry, and Kenny leads him in, saying that he made up the tiger. Charles escapes out of the bathroom, and when he forces himself to go back in, he sees the tiger has torn a piece of Kenny's shirt on its claw. Charles decides to relieve himself in the sink, but Mrs. Bird catches him. She goes around the corner to find Kenny and Charles, and Charles leaves the bathroom. He returns to his classroom and begins reading Roads to Everywhere. So this is a weird little story, and although it's short, King captures the dread of being the center of attention in class, which is just, it's the introvert's worst nightmare. Miss Bird is a despicable, mean-spirited little character, and I felt anxiety being in her presence, as if I was stuck in her classroom of rigid rules and iciness. Now, we have all had that teacher. Her name might not have been Mrs. Bird, and she might not have even been a she at all, but we've all had that teacher. Um, and in such a short span, King captures the feeling of safety when Charles enters the bathroom. Um, you know, it might not be the same bathroom as your old school, but it certainly rang a bell for me. And then this happened. The bathroom. Basement was built like an L, the short side lined with tiny square mirrors and white porcelain wash bowls and a paper towel dispenser, the longer side with two urinals and three toilet cubicles. Charles went around the corner after glancing morosely at his thin, rather pallid face in one of the mirrors. The tiger was lying down at the far end, just underneath the pebbly white window. It was a large tiger, tawny Venetian blinds and dark stripes laid across its pelt. It looked up alertly at Charles, and its green eyes narrowed. A kind of silky, purring grunt issued from its mouth. Smooth muscles flexed, and the tiger got to its feet. Its tail switched, making little chinking sounds against the porcelain side of the last urinal. What the hell is that? King slips in the tiger with such nonchalantness, it creates a perfect dreamlike tone where it's perfectly natural to walk into the bathroom and find a tiger. It's a natural extension to the weird connection between his obsession on the, you know, basement bathroom comparison. There's no reason these two things should have anything to do with one another, just like a child would have no business ever going to the school's basement, and yet it weighs on Charles' mind as if it's normal as going to lunch or getting a drink from the water fountain. The story is soon over, just as it begins, really, with a classmate getting eaten, followed by what we are led to believe is the attack on Mrs. Bird. And so, in the end, we have a cat 
eating a bird. And we have Stephen Kingisms. First up, we have the child protagonist, which clearly is something that we have seen again and again and again. We have the cruel adult. Miss Bird is not unlike Mr. Keen from It, a warped funhouse mirror of what is supposed to be a trustworthy role model, but instead is one who is cruel and gets their kicks from the misery of children. Tiger. It's not the only time we see a tiger in a king story. Spoiler alert for Wind Through the Keyhole, but we'll see one again in the supplemental Dark Tower publication, The Wind Through the Keyhole. In fact, there's enough hint of a twinkling personality in the tiger's eye that it's almost strong enough for me to list this in the Easter egg section rather than Stephen King's section. So I won't spoil the events of Wind Through the Keyhole, but it's not much of a stretch of an imagination uh, to imagine a certain character when reading this story. Number four, climactic urination. Now, this is a phrase that I had never thought I'd ever use in my life, but you only YOLO once, right? The story concludes the only way it can, with Charles taking a leak. After all, the story isn't necessarily about a tiger, really. It's about a kid needing to pee. And so we wouldn't be surprised that this is where the story reaches its climax. Just like the Night Flyer from Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which also has a memorable scene, the story's climax, which sees the main character relieving himself in the bathroom, or Dreamcatcher, in which another character finds himself um, facing off um, against a monster while, while urinating. This is something that we see again and again and again um, in the works of Stephen King. Up next, we switch from tigers to monkeys, um, specifically the monkey. Uh, So Wikipedia says, uh, the story starts with two young brothers, Petey and Dennis, finding a wind-up toy monkey in the attic of their father's uncle's home where he had grown up. Bit by bit, it's revealed that their father, Hal, had found the toy monkey in his father's old chest. His father had been a merchant mariner who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. At some point in the story, Hal suspects that the monkey led his father to go missing. The monkey is actual, actually somewhat haunted, and every time it claps its mechanical symbols together, sometimes on its own, someone close to Hal dies. He had been tormented by the monkey as a child. When it worked its lethal enchantment on his family and friends and killed them off until Hal had chucked it down the old well at the home of his uncle and aunt. In the present, Hal takes the monkey and throws it in Crystal Lake, hoping that it will be finished once and for all and it won't kill anyone again. The story ends with an excerpt of a newspaper article which reports on a mysterious die-off of fish in the lake. Review. Okay, so let's... I need to get this out of the way, um, like right out of the way. Just to be clear, this is not... And this is a a, a big um, misconception with both readers and average filmgoers alike. This is not... I repeat, the monkey is not Monkey Shines the 90s horror movie that also happens to feature a monkey. I don't know. I guess monkeys were in around that time, um, but I just need to stress this is not Monkey Shines. Whatever. This story kicks off with a fantastic hook, and King writes, When Hal Shelburne saw it, when his son Dennis pulled it out of a moldering Ralston Purina carton that had been pushed pushed far back under one attic eave, such a feeling of horror and dismay rose in him that for one moment he thought he would scream. He put one fist in his mouth as if to cram it back, and then merely coughed into his fist. Neither Terry nor Dennis noticed, but Petey looked around, momentarily curious. 
I dare you to turn away after reading that introductory paragraph. You won't be able to. He has you. Hook, line, and sinker. You need to know what Hal Shelburne has seen, and the tension immediately mounts while he gives you enough information to attach your fears to identifiable characters in an identifiable setting, a father and his children in the attic. All with two sentences. This is a fun story that speaks to King's power, uh, King, the power of King's ability. There is so much dread wrapped up in that little monkey. It creates for one of his scariest stories. And to wring so much fright from such a harmless object, it's an amazing feat. First, King weaves in the image of the monkey. It's grinning horror, and then begins to weave in the mystery. Why is the main character so afraid of this thing? What happened so long ago? Why did Hal throw it down the well? And how did it wind back up in the attic? When he gets around to mentioning another character's long-ago death, you can't help but assume that's tied to the monkey. But the question, of course, is how? How can this toy monkey be responsible for so much fear and death at all? The answer, of course, is the monkey's symbols which is an ingenious method of murder. We have all seen this monkey before, and what King is a master at is taking something so harmless and universal and turning it malicious. As I'll mention in the Stephen Kingism sections, he does this with chattery teeth and the cookie jar. He does this with a polo racket in The Shining, as, you know, with cars, as he does in Christine, Uncle Otto's truck, from a Buick 8, and more, with St. Bernard's, with Mist, with Clowns. Who among us doesn't think of Captain Trips when we hear someone coughing? And I'm also sure I'm not the only person to think of the Langoliers when I board a plane. He does it with missing objects you can't find from insomnia, trucks barreling down the road from Pet Cemetery, with a blizzard from Storm of the Century, with cell phones in cell, and more. It goes on. The man is a master at taking something familiar and making it his own. Much like he takes the concept of the monkey's paw, and mixes it with the killer doll to make this story his own. When little Hal, in a flashback, is awoken to the sound of the previously thought broken symbols smashing against each other, it's a horrifying moment. Not because we know someone's going to die, but because it's terrifying. We've woken up, you know, all of a sudden, at a welcome noise. Your wall of safety has been broken, and through the cracks come the monsters. The truth of the monkey's power begins to make itself known. As in the flashbacks, both young Hal and his brother wind the monkey's key ring, which in turn causes the death of a babysitter, a childhood friend, and then their mother. The story progresses, and we learn more about the horrors of childhood life with the inanimate object. It can't be banished. It sits, constantly staring. It's really goddamn creepy. It's beyond unsettling. While in the present, Hal and his favorite son, Petey, plan to get rid of the monkey. He takes it with him in the rowboat to the deepest point of Crystal Lake, while Petey watches from shore. The symmetry here is subtle, but powerful. Hal's own father, a seaman, disappeared somewhere beyond the sea while his children remained behind on shore. Now, years later, Hal, now a father himself, heads into the water while his own son remains behind. Furthermore, his father had brought the monkey to them from across the ocean while Hal paddles into the lake to return it into the water. Now, here's the deal. There's no reason for a short story about an evil wind-up monkey doll to have as suspenseful an ending as it does. King writes, The boat reared and came down. He glanced left and saw baby whitecaps. He looked shoreward again and saw a hunter's point and collapsed wreck that must have been the burdened boathouse when he and Bill were kids. Almost there then. Almost over the spot where Armos Culligan's famous Studebaker had plunged through the ice one long-ago December, 
almost over the deepest part of the lake. Petey was screaming something, screaming and pointing. Hal still couldn't hear. The rowboat rocked and rolled, flatting off clouds of thin spray to either side of its peeling bow. A tiny rainbow glowed in one, was pulled apart. Sunlight and shadow raced across the lake in shudders, and the waves were not mild now. The whitecaps had grown up. His sweat had dried to goose flesh, and spray had soaked the back of his jacket. He rode grimly, eyes alternating between the shoreline and the flight bag. The boat rose again, this time so high that for a moment the left oar pawed at the air instead of water. Petey was pointing at the sky, his scream now only a faint bright runner of sound. Hal looked over his shoulder. The lake was a frenzy of waves, had gone a deadly dark shade of blue sewn with white seams. A shadow raced across the water toward the boat, and something in its shape was familiar, so terribly familiar, that Hal looked up and then the scream was there, struggling in his tight throat. The sun was behind the cloud, turning it into a hunched working shape with two gold-edged crescents held apart. Two holes were torn in one end of of the cloud, and the sunshine poured through the two shafts. As the cloud crossed over the boat, the monkey's symbols, barely muffled by the flight bag, began to beat. Jang, jang, jang. It's you, Hal. It's finally you. You're over the deepest part of the lake now, and it's your turn, your turn, your turn. All the necessary shoreline elements had clicked into their places. The rotting bones of Amos Culligan Studebaker lay somewhere below. This was where the big ones were. This was the place. Hal shipped the oars, uh to the locks and one quick jerk leaned forward unmindful of the wildly rocking boat and snatched the flight bag the cymbals made their wild pagan music the bag's insides bellowed as if with tenebrous respiration right here you son of a whore hal screamed right here he threw the bag over the side it sank fast for a moment he could see it going down sides moving and for that endless moment he could still hear the cymbals beating and for a moment the black waters seemed to clear, and you could see down into that terrible gulf of waters to where the big ones lay. There was Amos Culligan Studebaker, and Hal's mother was behind its slimy wheel, a grinning skeleton with a lake bass staring coldly from one fleshless eye socket. Uncle Will and Aunt Ida lolled beside her, and Aunt Ida's gray hair trailed upward as the bag fell, turning over and over, a few silver bubbles trailing up, jang, jang, jang. Hal slammed the oars back into the water, scraping blood from his knuckles. Ah, not God, the back of Amos Culligan Studebaker had been full of dead children, Charlie Silverman, Johnny McCabe, and began to bring the boat about. There was a dry pistol shot cracked between his feet and suddenly clear water was welling up between two boards the boat was old the wood had shrunk a bit no doubt it was just a small leak but it hadn't been there when he had rowed out he would have sworn to it the shore and the lake changed places in his view Petey was as back now overhead that awful simian cloud was breaking up hal began to row 20 seconds was enough to convince him he was rowing for his life He was only a so-so swimmer, and even a great one would have been put to the test in this suddenly angry water. Two more boards suddenly shrank apart with that pistol shot sound. More water poured into the boat, dousing his shoes. There were tiny metallic snapping sounds that he realized were nails breaking. One of the oar locks snapped and flew off into the water. Would the swivel itself go next? 
The wind now came from his back, as if trying to slow him down or even drive him into the middle of the lake. He was terrified, but he felt a crazy kind of exhilaration through the terror. The monkey was gone for good this time. He knew it somehow. Whatever had happened to him, the monkey would not be back to draw a shadow over Dennis's life or Petey's. The monkey was gone, perhaps resting on the roof of the hood of Amos Culligan's Studebaker at the bottom of Crystal Lake. Gone for good, he rode, bending forward and rocking back. That cracking, crimping sound came again, and now the rusty Crisco can that had been lying in the bow of the boat was floating in three inches of water. Spray blew in Hal's face. There was a louder snapping sound, and the bow seat fell in two places and floated next to the bait box. A board tore off the left side of the boat, and then another. This one at the waterline tore off at the right. Hal rode, breath rasped in his mouth, hot and dry, and then his throat swelled with a coppery taste of exhaustion. His sweaty hair flew. Now a crack zipped directly up at the bottom of the rowboat, zigzagged between his feet and ran up the bow. Water gushed in. He was in water up to his ankles, then to the swell of the calf. He rowed, but the boat's shoreward movements was sludgy now. He didn't dare look behind him to see how close he was getting. Another board tore loose. The crack running up the center of the boat grew branches like a tree. Water flooded in. Hal began to make the oars sprint, breathing in great failing failing gasps. He pulled once, twice, and on the third pull, both swivels snapped off. He lost one oar, held on to the other. He rose to his feet and began to flail at the water with it. The boat rocked, almost capsized, and spilled him back onto his seat with a thump. Moments later, more boards tore loose. The seat collapsed, and he was lying in the water, which filled the bottom of the boat, astounded at its coldness. He tried to get on his knees, desperately thinking, Petey must not see this, must not see his father drown right in front of his eyes. You're going to swim, dog paddle if you have to, but do, do something. There was another splintering crack, almost a crash, and he was in the water, swimming for the shore as he had never swum in his life, and the shore was amazingly close. A minute later, he was standing waist-deep in water, not five yards from the beach. Petey splashed towards him, arms out, screaming and crying and laughing. Hal stared, started towards him and floundered. Petey, chest deep, floundered. They caught each other. I mean, that is amazing. And all the more amazing when you think that the story is about a toy monkey with killer symbols. All right, guys, we have uh, a number of Stephen Kingisms, the first of which is villainous childhood gifts or objects, uh, like we see in Shattery Teeth. And the cookie jar, this is a Stephen Kingism that pops up again and again. Lake houses. This collection starts off with the mist, whose, setting us, whose setting allows us great descriptions of the mist rolling off the lake. Other lake stories include Bag of Bones, The Raft, Firestarter, The Dark Half, Gerald's Game, and more. Uh, number three is Unnecessary Racism. Now, I've covered this extensively in older episodes, um, the one seen in King's earlier works, but here we have a throwaway use of the N-word that does not add anything to the story other than it re- reinforces a dead character's unlikability. Uh, number four, we have Returning Evil. Clearly, it is the biggest example of this, but we've seen it in The Shining, Cujo, Christine, Eyes of the Dragon, Duma Key, Needful Things, and more. Um, we have the Stephen King catchphrase. I haven't covered this in, in quite some time, but this particular catchphrase is, the wind can whistle, but it can't carry a tune. 
car murder. Uh, Hal's brother Bill's childhood friend is killed when struck by a car, which sends his sneakers off, a repeated detail from many of King's many deaths by car. The prophetic dream. So maybe this isn't so much an example of the prophetic dream as it is a terrifying dream when young Hal dreams of his dead mother. King, you know, whether it's a prophetic dream or a spooky dream, one thing's for sure, King likes his dream sequences. Number eight is drowning evil in clean water. Um, So, spoiler alert for people who haven't read all of his works because I don't even want to mention the names of the books because I would give away the ending if I did so unless you have read all of his stuff. Um, So skip ahead if you are not um, familiar with Stephen King's works. But specifically, um, in Duma Key, uh, this ends with Edgar and Mike dumping purse into the clean waters of a lake. Evil Clouds... Spoiler alert for The Shining and The Regulators. In the conclusion of both of these stories, we see dark clouds as the embodiment of the evils that haunted their respective stories hovering over the world. In The Shining, a dark manta ray of blackness escapes the hotel but is torn to shreds in the night. And in The Regulators, a cloud in the shape of a cowboy rides the sky before the sunbeams break it apart. Uh, Fun fact, um, The Overlook makes an appearance in The Regulators as well. And here, uh, the monkey becomes a cloud as Hal races to throw it into the lake. Easter eggs. Arnett, Texas. Our main character, Hal, manages to score a job in Arnett, the home of one of the stand's main characters, Stu Redman. Furthermore, the same Texas instrument calculator company that he wound up working at was also mentioned in the stand. Up next, we have Kane Rose Up. Um... So it was originally published in the spring uh, 1968 issue of Ubris Magazine and collected in King's Skeleton Crew in 1985. It deals with a depressed and homicidal college student, Kurt Garish, who goes on a murderous sniper rampage from his dormitory room. My review is this. Um, This is a shitty little story. Um, And it's the prototype for what we will see become uh, both rage and apt pupil. So we have uh, Stephen Kingisms. Uh, we have a character named Beaver. We will see that again in Dreamcatcher. Now I will move on to the wedding gig. So from Wikipedia, told from the viewpoint of a band leader during Prohibition, the story centers around a small-time racketeer, Mike Scully, who hires the narrator's jazz band to play at the wedding of his 300-pound sister, Maureen, and her 90-pound fiancé. At the gig, Scully's enemy, the Greek, blackmails a man to come to the wedding reception and insult Maureen in front of the guests. Shortly after, Mike is shot down in a hail of gunfire from the Greek's men. I'm sorry, guys. Um, you're hearing maybe behind me. Um, maybe is not the, 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 the spry puppy she once was, and uh, lying on the couch at times is too strenuous an activity uh, in which she often... Uh, Runs, uh, runs out of breath. So if you hear her breathing heavily, um, you know, she's exerting herself uh, as she's sleeping. So shortly after, uh, Mike is shot down in a hail of gunfire from the Greeks' men. The band leader is approached a short time later in a bar by Maureen, who is despondent and depressed, feeling that she caused her brother's death and is filled with self-loathing over her weight and the way she is aware of other people perceiving her. 
After requesting a song, she leaves, and the narrator never sees her again. But he, like everyone else in the country, follows her story from that point on. Maureen Scullet takes over her brother's racket with her husband and her lieutenant and carves out a criminal empire that ironically far eclipses the operations of both her brother and the Greek, whom she hunts down and takes a gruesome revenge on. Eventually, she is caught by the FBI and sent to prison, where she is soon joined by her husband, who does not share her leadership abilities and quickly fails without her. She eventually dies in prison from a heart attack, and the narrator sadly reflects on the cruel rumors that she had ballooned even further in weight by that point, something he considers to be just malicious rumors. Um, so my review of this, it's really short. Um, for what it is, it's a good story, which is, a, you know, it's one of those hard-boiled, pulpy, throwback crime mystery stories. It, it, it's, it's done well, but me, I'm not a huge fan of this particular genre, so I didn't get much out of it, um, and I can't really say you know too much about it um, in terms of analysis or in terms of personal enjoyment. Up next, we have Paranoid, a chant. Um, so the the poem from Wikipedia is a first-person narrative from the diary of a person with paranoid schizophrenia. The character complains of persecution from the old woman in the room above who has put an electric suction cup on the floor. The waitress says it's salt, but I know it's arsenic when it's put before me and many more horrors. When he has served food with mustard, he thinks it is to mask the bitter odor of almonds, presumably a reference to cyanide. According to the poem, the victim has amassed 500 notebooks with 500 pages in each one and records all the wrong done to him in the books. He thinks as enemies are part of a massive government conspiracy and mentions the FBI and the CIA. He is also superstitious. He knows chants and he wears charms. The poem is recursive, ending where it begins with the stanza, I can't go out no more. There's a man by the door in a raincoat. The poem also has ties to the Dark Tower. When King originally began writing The Stand, he wrote A Dark Man with No Face. This became the description for Randall Flagg and is an exact line from the poem. So that's where I'm going to leave it because reviewing poetry is... um, I'm not as good at reviewing poetry as I am at analyzing um, prose. So I... I don't really want to get into it is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So I think that the, the, the Wikipedia summary kind of, um, you know, speaks for itself. Okay, up next we have uh, the word processor of the gods from Wikipedia. A middle-aged writer is disenchanted with his tyrannical wife, his disrespectful teenage son, and his life in general. His teenage nephew suddenly dies in a car accident caused by the writer's abusive brother who was driving drunk who dies as well, along with the nephew's gentle, kind mother. Among the boy's effects, the writer finds a word processor seemingly cobbled together from a dozen different sources with the startup message stating, Happy birthday, Uncle Richard, revealing that it was intended as a birthday gift for the main character. At home, the writer discovers that the processor has the mysterious ability to affect reality, but the electronics in the patchwork machine are brittle and will not function for long. While in the middle of testing the processor, Richard's son Seth returns home alongside obnoxious band members. Overhearing his son badmouthing him, Richard deletes him, which retroactively erases his existence. His bandmates are gone, his room is empty, and every trace of him ever living there is gone. 
When his wife returns home, he finds she is now even fatter than when she had left, a result of never having any children. After she vocally abuses him, he deletes her as well. With the processor now rapidly deteriorating, Richard impulsively rewrites reality, making the nephew his own son and his mother his wife. Moments before the processor irreparably breaks, he turns around, finding the nephew alive once again and now calling him dad. Review. This is a fun what-if story about daydreams and missed opportunities. As we'll see in the Kingisms, this story shares some parallels with some of his other works, but what I like about word processor of the gods is that at its heart it's a story about a star-crossed family it's not just that richard hates his wife and son he feels as though by all accounts he should have been the husband to his sister-in-law and the son you know and and um the father to his nephew and somehow king is able to write this sentiment without being too 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 grimy you know richard is trapped in a loveless marriage and john his genius nephew is trapped under the drunken rule of an abusive father it's not hard to imagine that john was a breaker or have the shine um an aspect of the dark tower movie that um you know i do like that they included that um regardless uh you know, it, it's not hard to believe that they were supposed to be together, but were split apart due to the weakening of the Dark Tower's beams. And reality rewrote itself so that they were still a family. Not the family they should have been, but with John's ability, he can make it right in the end. Um, you know, honestly, this reminds me of an issue of um, the, 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 the comic book series Astro City by Kurt Busiek. Um there's one particular one issue, one issue um, in which this man is is having these dreams of this woman, and he's going about his day, and you know he's living his life. But every night, every night, he dreams of this woman, and it's causing him so much sadness. Like he feels like he knows her, but he's never met her before um, in in his in his life, and he he's starting to kind of go nuts just thinking about this woman. And then one day in his house, one of these comic book characters from Astro City, um, these superheroes, shows up in his house, and it's um, this, you know, kind of like this uh, this Spectre sort of figure. Um, for those of you who know who the Spectre is, uh, you know, he's this mystical being within the, the world of Astro City who shows up and explains that... Um, in, in the world of these superheroes, you know, the, the we always see what happens, um, you know, with something like uh, Infinite Crisis or Zero Hour um, or, uh, you know, Crisis of Infinite Earths um, or um, Secret Wars uh, over in Marvel. There's always these reboots and there's these restarts, New 52, obviously, for, for DC. Um, and we always see what happens to our main characters, the superheroes, but we never see when reality rewrites itself what happens to the people on the ground floor. And that's what happens here. And the hangman explains that um, the woman that he dreams of um, was his wife and the love of his life in the previous reality that got wiped out and rewritten in whatever cosmic you know, war that had happened. And they are never meant to be together. They, they cannot exist together anymore because she does not exist in this reality um, anymore. And the hangman gives this man a choice. He said, I can take these dreams away and you can go about your day and never be haunted by her again. Um, about with memories that truly never existed really not in this reality. Um, and that's so sad to me. 
Um, and, and, and this story, the word processor of the, uh, of the gods, it seems like a, a happy version of that. So anyway, uh, we have some Stephen Kingisms. Um, a family man despising, you know, family. Um, there are many similarities between this, star- this story and uh, Fair Extension from Full Dark No Stars, um, found within. Uh, well, yeah. Um, then we have Supernatural Gadget. The word processor of the gods may uh, well have been built by someone possessed by the Tommyknockers. It's also very reminiscent of Joe Hill's short story Voluntary Committal, found within 20th Century Ghosts. Then we have The Man Who Would Not Shake Hands. It entails an aged, wealthy man recounting a card game he played many, many years ago when he met an odd man who refused to touch anyone, recoiling from contact and fear. After the odd man wins the game, a young player leaps up and shakes the hand enthusiastically. The odd man screams and bolts from the room. The narrator then makes it his mission to find him and give him his winnings. It's revealed shortly thereafter that the young player who shook the odd man's hand died of a brain aneurysm. The narrator speaks with an old associate of the man, who tells him that the title character was cursed by an Indian shaman after an unfortunate accident where the shake-hands man, named Henry Brower, accidentally caused the death of a boy. The man is cursed to cause the death of any living thing he touches, for he demonstrates on the dog. The narrator then finds the odd man dead in a seedy inn, one hand firmly clasping the other. Review. This is a uh, story about the power of storytelling. This now marks the second and unfortunately final appearance of this mysterious club of wealthy men who gather together to share spooky stories. The first appearance was found in the different season's uh, novella, The Breathing Method. Stephen King cast fans will know that I reviewed every novella within that collection except for The Breathing Method. When I finish my touch-up on the short story collections, um, I'm going to swing back and review The Breathing Method um, along with um, Roadwork by Richard Bachman as well. Uh, but anyway, I love this premise, and I wish that King would revisit it. I, I love secret societies fireplaces, spooky stories, and I love a secret society that tells spooky stories by a fireplace. And though you think that the supernatural aspects of the short story would be contained in the tales these men tell, you're wrong. Not only does the house in which they gather um, function as a doorway to other worlds, um, the servant is either gifted with long life or is immortal. If you're a fan of the Dark Tower, it's not hard to imagine that he's one of the long-timers or even an all-timer. Stephen Kingisms. Intense card game descriptions. Uh, We get this here. Uh, Most notably, though, I would say we get that in Hearts in Atlantis. And second one is a Westerner cursed by more exotic person um, upon the death of an innocent, which, of course, we saw in Thinner. Then with Easter eggs, um, like I said, this, this ties back to breathing method. And then we have Beach World. Um... Beach World is set at an unspecified time in the distant future. Among the few clues to the date is the passing reference to the, that last of the Beach Boys had died 8,000 years previously. The catastrophic crash landing of a Federation spacecraft on an uncharted planet made entirely of sand leaves crewman Grimes dead while Rand and Shapiro survive. Rand stares out over the sand dunes and both men associate the endless rolling dunes with a beach. Rand is becoming hypnotized by the dunes and refuses to move from the dune he is standing on or drink water. Shapiro also feels drawn to the dunes, but unlike Rand, finds this hypnosis frightening and is relieved to go inside the ship where the dunes are out of sight. 
When a trader spacecraft arrives in response to Shapiro's beacon, the trader's crew initially treats Shapiro's accounts of events with skepticism, but becomes convinced when they are unable to get Rand away from the dunes. Rand resists leaving the planet, and the sand reveals itself to be sentient. It prevents Rand's rescue by damaging a sampler android sent from the ship and sending a hand of sand up to stop the tranquilizer dart. The rescue ship escapes just in time, with Shapiro and the trader's captain both narrowly avoiding a giant hand of sand. Rand, left alone, stares up at the, sh- at the ship as it disappears, then begins to pile handfuls of sand into his mouth. Review. This is a good enough short story. I think that it starts to show its weakness when the rescue ship comes and the characters aboard um, you know, begin speaking with this language that they're using, you know, who's... You know, speech patterns are reminiscent of the language of the dead from Desperation in the Dark Tower. You know, which is fun that the rhythm will stick um, with King and he's going to later dust it off and use it for larger mythology. I want to be clear, though, this is not an indication that these characters are in any way related to the Dark Tower mythos. This is simply a case of an author playing with language. That's it. Either way, this is a fun story. It's very tense. It's atmospheric. Um, But I think that starts to buckle under its own weight when the rescue crew shows up. Um, With that said, I mean, this is a story that embraces its sci-fi origins fully. You know, it's Bradbury by way of King. But to me, it just doesn't live up to the level of quality by by Ray Bradbury. Stephen Kingisms. Sci-fi. Though King is known as the master of horror, he's also a child of the 50s and 60s sci-fi movies. We've seen him dabble with extraterrestrial threats in The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verilime's Doorway Trucks, Tommyknockers, Dreamcatcher, and others. So he's, he loves his sci-fi. Uh, hypnotic entity. Much like the oil slick in the raft, the sand is able to mesmerize its prey here. And an android referred to as Andy. In this story, the android's name naturally is Andy, which is clever. King will later go on to make the robot's name literally Andy in Wolves of the Column. Then we have the Reaper's image. Uh, The story concerns a visit by an antique collector, Johnson Spangler, the Samuel Claggart Museum, a museum estate full of Claggart's assembled possessions and blatant junk in an attempt to buy the legendary Delver's Mirror. The museum curator, Mr. Carlin, ushers Spangler through the building, recounting the storied history of the rare Elizabethan mirror, which has been plagued by incidents of attempt destruction. The museum curator also explains the infamous history of the mirror, recountering all the people who have looked into the mirror and mysteriously disappeared. Carlin tells the skeptical Spangler the image of the Reaper is rumored to appear to rumored to appear in the mirror, standing close to the viewer. Spangler scoffs, but feels unfathomable horror when he looks into the mirror and claims to see some duct tape in the mirror's corner. He angrily confronts Carlin, who claimed the mirror was undamaged. Carlin claims, however, that there is no duct tape and that Spangler is seeing the Reaper. When Spangler runs his hand over the duct tape, he feels a smooth surface rather than the rough outside of the tape. When Spangler looks again, the duct tape is gone. As Carlin relates the history of a high school boy who saw the Reaper and disappeared without a trace, Spangler becomes ill and rushes out of the second floor. Mr. Carlin remains behind to wait and wait. Review. Now, naturally, I I think that there's something inherently terrifying about mirrors. Um, You know, shameless plug to my upcoming... uh, (laughs) Twin Peaks podcast uh, hanging with Agent Cooper, but there is an effect in Twin Peaks uh, in the second season that uses a mirror to induce nightmares. Um, oh, it's an image that that 
I just got goosebumps. Um, and the idea of seeing something that shouldn't be looking at you is such an affront to the logical world that any mirror becomes a loaded gun of tension. Every time you look into the mirror, there's a question that hangs over you. What if, some, what if something is wrong when I look in the mirror? Will I see something behind me? Will my reflection not be there at all? What if I stare at an unmoving version of myself that doesn't mimic my own motions? What if another person's face stares back at me? There are so many possibilities that King could have chosen to explore the horrors that surround the concept of mirrors. It's just too bad that he chose the most boring one. Maybe because it doesn't feel like King wrote it. It has that dry, dusty feeling of imitation, like King was aping Lovecraft. You know, King has written and will later write stories that feel inspired by Lovecraft's style, you know, but those feel more natural to King. With Crouch End, Jerusalem's Lot, Revival, others, King takes the concepts of Lovecraft and filters them through the lens of his own style. Here, it just seems like Lovecraftian mimicry. And worse, it's dull. Up next, we have Nona. The story is the account of an unnamed man being held in prison, recounting his life as a college dropout who had met and fallen in love with a beautiful girl named Nona while aimlessly hitchhiking on a snowy winter's night in Maine. That night, the narrator is seduced by Nona into murdering several innocent bystanders. Somewhere near King's fictional town of Castle Rock, Nona lures the narrator to a graveyard, and when asked the repeated question, do you love, morphs into a hideously large rat and laughs at him. It's not immediately clear whether the narrator has encountered a supernatural force or if Nona is a figment of insanity. Later, the narrator is found alone by the authorities, taken into custody, and sent to prison where he now writes his tale, preparing to commit suicide as he contemplates hearing strange sounds in the walls. Reviews. There's a handful of stories in here that don't feel like Stephen King. The wedding gig, uh, Reaper's Image, these stand out. Um, As I mentioned not too long ago, Beach World crumbles from an ending that includes story elements that are just just outside of King's wheelhouse. But by the time we get to Nona, this story very much feels like prime Stephen King, spooky story drenched in both imagery and EC Comics roots. The mystery and the horror are intermingled with the kickoff to the story, which is a well-described fight scene in a truck stop parking lot under a winter's moon. It's suspenseful, rich in imagery, and the sudden possession of anger that grips our main character comes from the alluring nature of the mysterious truck stop girl Nona. The question is how. From there on out, we get their sudden love at first sight along with the rage that she brings out in him. A murder spree commences intermingled with flashbacks to Castle Rock. Yep, that Castle Rock, soon to be the star of an upcoming Hulu series, that Castle Rock. And this adds a special um, extra um, you know, spice to this story. So, Stephen Kingisms. Uh, we have uh, Sounds in the Walls. Um, which we have seen before in Jerusalem's Lot, and uh, from 1922, the story and a, a you know Netflix movie from Full Dark No Stars, Rat Monsters. We have seen this before in Graveyard Shift, and we have otherworldly beautiful women who transform. Take this description. As we come together in the dream, my fear grows, but it is impossible for me to draw back from her. 
My hands press against the smooth plane of her back, her skin near under silk. She smiles with those deep black eyes. Her head tilts up to mine and her lips part, ready to be kissed. That's when she changes, shrivels. Her hair grows coarse and matted, melting from black to an ugly brown that spills down over the creamy whiteness of her cheeks. The eyes shrink and grow beady. The whites disappear, and she is glaring at me with tiny eyes like two polished pieces of jet. The mouth becomes a maw through which crooked yellow teeth protrude. This description is so similar to a description um, found in Rose Matter. Then we have University Woes. Much like the main characters in Hearts in Atlantis, um, his partying threatens his status as a college student. And we have some Easter eggs. Uh, Do you love is a specific catchphrase that is also found in The Raft. And then we have Castle Rock. Not only does Castle Rock feature in the story, but Ace Merrill is given a name drop. Ace, of course, is the bully of the body and one of Leland Gaunt's goons and needful things. Um, Speaking of the body, there's also an appearance by Vern Tessio. Um, furthermore, there is a reference to a character named Malenfant, a peculiar last name, uh, most known most famously for Ronnie Malenfant from Hearts in Atlantis. Um, could this character be a relative of Ronnie? Uh, in Hearts in Atlantis, he does state that he has a sister after all, so it, it, it very well, very well could be. Let's see. Um, then we have For Owen, which is a poem by Stephen King, first published in King's 1985 collection Skeleton Crew. The 34-line verse, free verse poem consists of 11 unrhymed, unmetered verse paragraphs. Uh, the poem concerns King walking his son Owen to school as the boy describes a fantastic school attended by anthropomorphized fruit. So for a review, again, I'm not going to do a deep dive into poetry analysis, but I will say that this is a sweet little poem, which, again, you know, reinforces one of the reasons why Stephen King is unique among writers. He doesn't put on airs. He doesn't speak with a false voice. We love Stephen King because we feel as though we are friends with Stephen King. And it's for reasons like this. This is a sweet little poem, not just about a father, um, but himself, And not just a son, but his own, Owen. And to know that this past year, we saw the publication of Sleeping Beauties, the collaboration between this father and this son he once walked to school um, and wrote about in a poem. That's, that's, King will often write of magic, but that is, that is truly magical. That's a beautiful thing. Then we have Uncle Owen's truck from Wikipedia. The story concerns a wrecked and abandoned truck owned by Otto Schneck and George McChutchen, wealthy Castle Rock businessmen in the post-Depression era. After Otto deliberately crushes George beneath a derelict vehicle, the murderer becomes fixated on the truck, insisting it is not only moving of its own accord, but coming to kill him. At the same time, he also becomes a social recluse, living in a house he built across from the truck itself and generally begins to lose his sanity. His nephew, who tells the story, finally finds him dead. The corpse has been drowned with oil, and there is a spark plug rammed down his throat. The nephew goes on to describe how, on the day he found his uncle dead, he began to see strange happenings with the truck himself, and he could not accept his uncle's death as the suicide, as there was no jug near the body with which Otto could have fed himself the oil. The nephew would dismiss 
what he has seen as a hallucination, were it not for the derelict spark plug he took away from the corpse and kept as a reminder. Review. As killer car stories go, it's not King's best, but when talking about Uncle Owen's truck, you have to look at it from a different perspective. You wouldn't think that you would just be able to mine so many different stories from the concept of the evil car, but King keeps going back to that well and bringing out different flavored water each time. Here, the subject is that picturesque run-down car that you pass on a country road. We've all passed it before. The one that seems to fit into the surrounding setting. Uh, specifically, Uncle Otto's truck stands in the foreground of the White Mountains. Passing by it, you don't think evil. You just think quaint, beautiful even. And you'll drive on by without thinking a second thought, not realizing that the truck has its own story, one that includes its own victims. So that's how King does it. He hooks you with something that you'll recognize and immediately builds a story around it. Of course, you know, he perfects the evil car story with Christine, um, but he's still able to spin a new perspective in this much smaller haunting tale of one man's obsession and gruesome end. Stephen Kingisms. Well, the first, of course, duh. I mean, it's the evil car, seriously. You know, I mean, but here's the deal. After doing this for about 200 episodes... Um, and reviewing, you know, each of Stephen King's works. This is getting freaky. Spoiler alert for the entire Dark Tower series, so skip ahead if you have not read every single word written by King associated with the Dark Tower. In the past, I've wondered if on some level, King had some hint or warning of the events of June 19th, 1999. Evil cars or horrific car crashes have factored into his works as early back as Carrie, in which we get our first car crash. Jake Chambers dies twice by a car, and when the second death is literally saving Stephen King's life, it recontextualizes the first death by suggesting that the death is so important and set ripples through space-time that the first death might have been a prototype or an echo from an event that hadn't happened yet. King's constant use of evil cars or car crashes functions the same way as if something is warning him of what lies ahead. How else do you explain Christine from a Buick 8, low men in yellow coats, the car crashes in insomnia, pet cemetery, dark tower, revival, and more? Easter eggs, Castle Rock. And just like Nona, not only do we get a look at Castle Rock, but we get a look at relatives of characters that we know. In this case, it's an older relative of Frank Dodd, the cop in the dead zone. Second Easter egg, Derry, is also mentioned. Up next, we have Morning Deliveries, Milkman number one. From Wikipedia, Morning Deliveries, Milkman number one is a short story by Stephen King um, that follows the morning route of a milkman named Spike Milligan who leaves various surprises in milk bottles for his customers to find, including poisonous liquids, deadly gas, and venomous spiders. Um, The story was adapted from an unfinished novel called The Milkman. Yeah, I mean, it's a short story... uh, and it's crazy. I mean, this is one dated concept at this point. Um, you know, 2018, the idea of a, a specific job going from house to house delivering milk um, in bottles, it is, it, I mean, this is like an alien world. I mean, I had never experienced it. This was way before my time. And so reading, reading this story really is a glimpse into a life that has long since passed. Um, we have some Stephen Kingisms. We have spiders, certainly. Um, 
And then we have Big Wheels, Tale of the Laundry Game, Milkman number two. Wikipedia, the plot centers on two laundry workers named Rocky and Leo in a small Pennsylvanian town. After finishing up a shift at work, the men are driving around, getting drunk, and searching for an auto inspection station. The inspection certification on Rocky's car runs out at midnight and he needs to find somewhere that will renew it. They are drunk and getting drunker, drinking Iron City beer, which have the likeness of Pittsburgh Steelers playing on them. They finally come across an inspection station owned by an old friend of Rocky's, Bob Driscoll. Rocky crashes the car into Bob's garage, and in the ensuing verbal confrontation, Bob recognizes him. They then reminisce about the old times while Bob inspects Rocky's vehicle for certification. Rocky and Leo continue to drink. At one point, Leo falls into a drunken stupor. After Bob approves the vehicle, Rocky and Leo depart, both very drunk. Later that night, Bob, who was an unhappy marriage, kills his wife and burns down their home. On the way home on a long, dark stretch of road, Leo tells Rocky that he sees a vehicle following them, implying that it's a milk truck. Rocky's wife had left him for a local milkman, Spike, the primary character in Morning Delivery's Milkman Number 1. Rocky's reaction is extreme. He begins speeding dangerously and reveals to Leo that Spike kills people. Rocky's Chrysler crashes fatally into an oncoming vehicle that suddenly appears riding the median line. It is revealed that Spike, the local milkman, is driving this vehicle and that he is indeed a serial killer who plans to visit Bob's home and leave full cans of gasoline, suggesting that he will successfully influence Bob into killing his wife. Although not directly part of the main storyline, which takes on a darkly humorous tone, it's implied that there are links between one of the men and an unsolved murder of a teenage couple, although it's probable that this is another murder committed by Spike. Review. This is a really weird, weird one-two punch. It's just strange that King was inspired by this milkman character that he'd write not just a story about him, but another story in which he winds up popping up like the boogeyman, and I don't really have much more to add than that. And up next, we have The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet from Wikipedia. The main character is Henry, usually referred to as the editor, fiction editor for Logan's, a struggling magazine. Henry receives an unsolicited short story from an up-and-coming novelist, Reg Thorpe, and considers the story to be very dark, but also a masterpiece. Through his correspondence with Thorpe, Henry learns of, and due to Henry's own alcoholism, eventually begins to believe in Thorpe's various paranoid fantasies. Most notably, Henry and Thorpe believe that their typewriters serve as home for fornits, tiny elves who bring creativity and good luck. The story, told from Henry's perspective as he relays it in anecdotal form at a barbecue, concerns Henry's descent into Thorpe's madness. Meanwhile, Henry also struggles to get Thorpe's story published, despite the fact that Logan's is in the process of closing its fiction department. Review. Um, Here's another example of King writing about writers. The reason is simple enough and addressed explicitly by one of the characters in the story, and that's because writers write about what they know, which is clearly why King has written of writers so often throughout his career. What we get here is not the solitary writer, however, but a look at the industry itself, which we often don't get with King. The only other time I can think of this off the top of my head is a couple scenes in Bag of Bones. It adds a different texture to the familiar tropes within. Through conversation, King is able to discuss big concept of reality and art, madness, plot versus story, um, and it actually functions as a pretty good companion piece to Joe Hill's best new horror. And in it all, the Fornets, the Fornets, such a crazy concept, and King just runs with it. Um, 
and the fact that he like this name Fornitz, it's it's distinct, it's unique, and you get this image of these little elf creatures. It's um, it's really whimsical in a, in a strange, strange way. I, I don't remember reading the story much, or or at all really, when I was when I first read this collection. So revisiting this was a lot of fun for me. I was really into this. I didn't think I would be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Fornets, I mean, how can you not love those guys? All right, Stephen Kingisms. We have writers, as I've spoken about. We have the paranoid chant. Um, the author's writing at one point is referred to as a paranoid chant, not to be confused with paranoid, a chant found, with this, found within this collection. Alcoholism. Our narrator is an alcoholic. We have seen this before in both our author and many of his characters. And technology glowing green. Our narrator starts to imagine a green glow coming out of the technological devices that are driving him insane, an image that King will return to for the Tommyknockers. The very concept of Fornitz will be repurposed as the Tommyknockers when King gets around to writing that underappreciated, insane novel. Um, And that leads us to the very, very end of Skeleton Cruise. So ladies and gentlemen... This is now the second episode in which I reviewed Skeleton Crew. I've just made it over an hour, and I have reviewed all the stories within this collection. So we can close the book on the book, Skeleton Crew. Um, I enjoyed revisiting it this time around, and I enjoy being back. So um, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to share any of your thoughts with any of the stories in Skeleton Crew um, in, in from this review or from my uh, early review back um, in the first wave of, of Stephen King cast episodes. You know, and just share your thoughts. And if you haven't done so already, you know, like I said earlier, feel free to, to head on over to iTunes, leave a review there, and keep your, your eyes and ears um, open for uh, my next podcast, Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast in which I will review each of the 18 episodes from David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks The Return, which aired last year on Showtime. So what I will be doing with um, Hanging with Agent Cooper uh, every week, um, beginning with uh, the first episode um, that aired in May, um, May 23rd, I believe. That will be the the first episode, um, yeah, last, I believe last year was May, um, May 21st, May 21st was the first episode of uh, Twin Peaks The Return. So May 21st, 2018, I will launch the first episode, and every week after that, um, I will I will review the subsequent episodes until I conclude with episode 18. There will be a couple episodes after that in which I dive into the themes, but for the most part, I'm really sticking with uh, each of the episodes, um, you know, on on the anniversary of when they came out last year, and knowing what David Lynch and Mark Frost had given us as a whole, I am able to contextualize each episode. Um, as much as I can contextualize anything by, by David Lynch. But um, I had fun rewatching them. I had fun putting some thoughts down, and I'm going to have fun recording it and sharing it with the world in uh, Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast. So keep your, your eyes and ears open for that one, guys. And if you're Twin Peaks fans, I think that you'll enjoy. Um, I don't know what the future holds for that one. If there's uh, demand for it, um, 
I could get around to uh, reviewing seasons one and two of Twin Peaks and uh, Firewalk with me. I could do that. Um, I don't know if I will because I, I started out and wanted to do a Stephen King podcast, and that is where I, I, I need to, to focus my attention um, if I find I can do both successfully, then I will do both successfully. Um, but I'm structuring this in a way where I can I can do both. Um, now that I am back on a weekly basis with the Stephen King cast, I don't want anyone to, to worry that for 18 weeks you are not going to see the Stephen King cast in lieu of hanging with Agent Cooper. I'm going to stagger my recordings Um so that when I get around to releasing the, the Hanging with Agent Cooper episodes, I will have a number of those already re-recorded. So to me, I won't be having to, to, to juggle recording two episodes a week for two different podcasts on, type, on, type, on top of uh, my full-time job, uh, raising a daughter um, and being a husband. Uh, so I will have a bunch of pre-recorded episodes for Hanging with Agent Cooper that will allow me to um, keep up with the Stephen King cast and uh, so you will get both. You'll get goodness from the world of Stephen King and David Lynch um, for those of you who are interested. So everyone, thank you for, for being patient over the last couple of months when I haven't been around um, as much as I would have liked, but you've been patient um, and your prayers have been answered. I'm back, guys. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to be back on a regular basis forever again indefinitely. There will come a point where life will reassert itself um, and the podcast will take a back seat. In the meantime, we've got a lot of good stuff um, coming up. Um, I need to uh, review all of my um, thoughts on uh, the short stories I didn't get to in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, um, in uh, Just After Sunset, Everything's Eventual, um, and then there's a number of adaptations that I want to get to as well. And like I said, Castle Rock will be coming out. Um, this this spring and summer, and I will definitely be reviewing that. And uh, we have The Outsider by Stephen King being released um, this summer as well, which I will be reviewing. And uh, I will get around to reviewing the rest of the Mr. Mercedes adaptation. I would love to get all of that out to you. So there's definitely a lot of good stuff on the horizon. And like I said, on top of that, there will be Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast, which I'm very excited about, um, you know, walking through the red curtains. Uh, so I'll see you guys at the curtain call. So uh, until next time, you have, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. Now's the time, don't be shy, just use your voice and scat. When I count one to three, let's do the scale and scat. One, two, three. One, two, three.